You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vore, and I'm one of your hosts. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Hey, Holly. Hey, Robert. On today's episode, we talk with Daniel Bowman Jr. about neurodiversity, autism, and the gifts that those can be to faith communities. But first, Holly, how are you today? I am doing well. I have a full cup of coffee in front of me, which I just shared with Mm -hmm. you before we started recording. And this may be the earliest, I think, that we've recorded an intro before. But I am so happy to be here and glad to be talking with you. Yeah. 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 A full cup of coffee. Obviously, the the implication there being that you haven't yet drank in said coffee. So <laughs> very uh, Im- yes. Yes. That is a very important point to that. Yes. Um, well, good morning. Yes. Um, good morning. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. But yeah, we're we're doing we're doing well. I think um my students and I are feeling the middle of the semester like like the assignments are all kind of coming in for mid-semester stuff and grading is going and, you know, we got some of that. Um, But otherwise we're, you know, we're doing pretty good. We're making it. So what about you? How are y'all doing? We're, we're doing well. Uh, Yeah. Everything's just kind of going same. I mean, obviously uh, mid-semester we don't, neither of us have assignments, things like that, but Mm. um, you know, still just kind of that, that interesting mid-fall kind of, you know, kind of start off the fall with maybe some extra gusto or whatever. And then, you know, towards the end, there's like the final push into the holidays and the middle is the middle. So, yeah. Yeah. I think it's like, I can feel my soul like getting getting adjusted with like, oh, wait, it is getting darker a lot earlier. And oh, wait, like I am a little bit more tired during the day than, you know, I may be during the summers and, you know, trying to navigate some of that shifting. I don't know. That's how it's been feeling here, but. Yeah. Well, I had a question for you. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask, what is something that you learned about yourself or discovered about yourself? Maybe not later in life because that, I don't know, that sounds weird, but like maybe post-20s or post-graduation from undergrad, you know, kind of in your in your adult life. Ooh, that is a good question. I really need to ask you to like prep me for some of these sometimes. Um, and I probably should do this. You can thing for pause you, and but... sip some of your coffee while you think. <laughs> no, that's good. I think a couple of things that I've learned um, about myself, kind of in you know post twenties, is both this paradox of I. And recognizing ways in which I have a lot more capacity for things and the ability to juggle and do um, and kind of keep an eye on and and just, yeah, just navigate a lot of varying things. And at the same time, like how very finite <laughs> my energy level is yeah, and yeah. how, you know, I cannot do everything all the time. And so I... I feel like that paradox has been something that was not really at the forefront of my mind um, in my, you know, my late teens or my twenties. Like I really just was very like, go, go, go. And, and then becoming a parent has introduced some different layers of complexity of like what my capacity looks like uh, and and varying individuals who need my attention. But then also like being able to say, yeah, like I, I am juggling a lot and I have limits. And so like dancing with that paradox, I feel like has mm. been a big theme of the last several years for me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what it would be for me. Yeah. What about you? I'll turn that one right around and ask you the same. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe some similar things that you were talking about um, in terms of, I don't know, I think, I think, so, you know, growing up and stuff, there was a lot of kind of go, go, go and and maybe like a larger capacity for things. And then I think at some point, maybe like mid-20s or something, I had this idea that like 
slowing down and having time in like silence and all that was something that I like had never done very well. And so I was like, oh, I need to make sure that I do that a bunch as if that was like inherently helpful. Um, And I think trying that for maybe a couple years or like wrestling with that. And then I I would say maybe even more recently uh, coming to appreciate the fact that there's a balance there where like I do need some calmer times, some moments, right? Like I do need some of that, Mm -hmm. but also that that like sometimes for me when I am feeling overwhelmed or whatever, right? Like sometimes like going and doing something that's like fun or active or like, you know, singing Mm -hmm. along the music in my car and playing drums, like all those things are are also helpful and beneficial to me in a like relaxing kind of way, which is maybe kind of uh, interesting because we think of kind of calming and, you know, settling down. Um, Mm -hmm. But maybe that that isn't always what I, what I need is like, okay, to find some time to like sit calmly and still. Sometimes I do need like some loud music and to go Mm -hmm. be active and, you know, like those types of things, which maybe feels uh, or at first glance seems like more of whatever, but maybe that actually is helpful for me um, in terms of like, having fun and things like that. So yeah. Um, yeah. No, oh, that's good. Well, good. Mm-hmm. I I mean, in some, in some of what you're saying reminds me, it's making me think of like the episode that we had with Dr. Sandra Dalton Smith around sacred rest mm-hmm. and right. And like paying attention to um, the type of rest that you need or outlet or, you know, that's a really good question though. I'm glad that you asked that one. Well, that, thank you. Yeah, I think that might See, be one that I like. Bright early in the morning. I know. Mm-hmm. I'll, yeah. I'll contemplate it as I finish my cup of coffee. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, the uh, the segue there, right? We, uh, as I mentioned right up top in this episode, we talk with Daniel Bowman Jr. and uh, his his new book that we read and talked about and and had some conversations, uh, kind of prompted by things in the book, right? Is called On the Spectrum: mm-hmm. Autism, Faith, and the Gifts of Neurodiversity. And uh, the the segue there is that we we talk a little bit about his story and him uh, coming to identify as autistic later in life, maybe as as an adult. Uh, mm-hmm. which is a little bit different than maybe a lot of people's experience um, and things like that. And so I loved this conversation. I mean, Daniel was great. I'm actually, I'm like halfway through editing it right now. Mm. Um, annoyingly, mm. partway through some of our like audio input switched, I think. So like my voice just like changes partway through oh, and is boo. recording through something different, which is annoying. Ah. Eventually this season, we're going to have one where we don't preface any kind of technology issues, but... <laughs> Here we are. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we will get out of the way and let y'all listen to our interview with Daniel Bowman Jr. All right. Enjoy, y'all. Today, we are so excited to be joined by Daniel Bowman Jr. He is an author, poet, and associate professor of English at Taylor University in Upland, Indiana. Did I say that right? It seems like a maybe how you would say it, uh, where he co-directs the Making Literature Conference. He writes and speaks regularly on neurodiversity, and he's the editor-in-chief of Relief, a journal of art and faith. He also mentors young people on the spectrum and is the faculty advisor to students for education on neurodiversity, and he's the author of the new book, On the Spectrum, Autism, Faith, and the Gifts of Neurodiversity. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah. Before we dive in, anything else that our audience should know about you? I don't know. I think that just about covers it. Okay. Well, some folks uh, might have heard the word neurodiversity recently, but might not be entirely clear on what that means, right? So kind of to set the the stage, if we will, make sure we're all kind of on the same page. Can you talk a little bit about neurodiversity, maybe the difference between a, a neurodiversity paradigm and a pathology paradigm, why that's important, kind of the, the, the ground floor? Yeah, absolutely. Um, That's a great place to start. Thanks for asking. So neurodiversity basically just refers to different brain types. Uh, The neurotypical brain um, tends to function in ways that we understand and expect. And then the autistic brain or the ADHD brain, for example, falls into a a neurodivergent category. And they just work differently. I think the issue with a, a neurodiversity paradigm versus a pathology paradigm is really that when you pathologize something like autism, it becomes very negative. And in some cases, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, if you look at standard autistic brain wiring and the behaviors that result from it, 
you know, you're thinking of um, perhaps the inability to sustain eye contact, or you're talking about um, self-regulatory behaviors or what we call stimming, um, self-stimulatory uh, behaviors and things like that. It's, it's, we, we find that it's dangerous to pathologize them and call them odd and weird and strange and, and all that kind of stuff, which is honestly what's written in, in textbooks about autism. Uh, when in fact, most of those behaviors, it turns out, have uh, a purpose in the life of the autistic and they're perfectly normal and they're harmless. And so that's why I think we need to shift from a pathology paradigm only where, where you're looking at the deficits in autistic people and focusing on those and moving toward a neurodiversity paradigm where you say they're not necessarily bad things. They're just differences. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's good. That's super helpful. So I do want to hear a little bit uh, about the degree or how you kind of came to identifying as autistic and being on the spectrum. And I, I did notice that you talked a little bit about this around in 2015, correct? Like within the book. And I'd love right. to hear a little bit more about like that journey of like how you kind of came to self-diagnose with this and, and just live into this um, layer of who you are. And part of the reason, if you don't mind me sharing, like part of the reason I'm asking is I, I know someone who, have you, are you familiar with the show Parenthood? Um, yeah. Okay. So there's a son, the son in that show. I know he um, is autistic and I remember a loved one kind of identifying some of similarities between his experiences and really just kind of this awakening of, oh, I, I hadn't really realized that, that, that is me in a lot of ways. Right. And so I'd love to just hear some of your journey into the self-diagnosis and how you have lived into um, being on the spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's that's a really interesting point that you make because I, I honestly didn't see representations in popular culture and media that, uh, that I connected with, although I do now. Uh, we see that more and more. I think there's been a, a really renewed interest um, in the entertainment world in autism and autistic characters. And so there's so many shows now. Um, a lot of people were talking about shows like Atypical on Netflix. There's a reality show called Love on the Spectrum that just picked up a second season on Netflix. And so um, in autism circles, we're talking about these things a lot. But for me, I didn't really have any of those uh, images to look to or, or models to look to or, or even just reflections to see myself in. My own journey into diagnosis came through crisis in my own personal life. <laughs> I had been doing a lot of soul searching and I, I've gone to spiritual direction and counseling for years. And so, you know, I, I'm trying to be intentional about understanding myself, but something different happened. I had a, a really severe meltdown at one point uh, when I felt threatened that some of my routines were going to be interrupted uh, abruptly. And, and I didn't understand why I was taking it so badly and how can other people just kind of roll with the punches, uh, when things hurt me so much. And so I thought, you know, to some extent, maybe I'm just oversensitive. I was called that a lot as a kid. Many people on the spectrum are, um, are, are, are thought of that way before they have a diagnosis. And after all, I became, you know, I studied creative writing and became a poet. So I thought maybe I'm just a very sensitive guy. Uh, but that's not really the end of the story. I, I began doing a lot of searching online. And when I hit high-functioning autism or what was called Asperger's syndrome, uh, the whole checklist made perfect sense to me uh, just in every way. And so suddenly I recognized all of these weird, quirky traits within myself that I thought were, were unconnected from one another actually formed a constellation of characteristics that is called autism. And from there on out, I kind of became obsessed with learning more and more and more. Um, I had the privilege to seek out a, an official diagnosis from um, mental health professionals. Not everybody has that because it's very expensive and it's very time consuming. Uh, but I, for me, for my journey, I really wanted it just to kind of affirm what I uh, thought I understood about myself. And sure enough, it went that way. So I was very thankful for that. Yeah. That's good. So we, we do want to acknowledge, you know, kind of like you're talking about there that, uh, 
not having just kind of one idea of what the the traits of autism might be, right? Because that's, we circle all the way back to like stereotypes and things, right? Yeah. And and moving beyond kind of hearing one story or the, the, the version that is mostly in TV and things like that, right? That being said, there are some things that are, are more common to uh, what I'll call, because you talked about it in the book as as an operating system, right? So more common to the, the autism OS. Can you speak to some of those traits uh, just you know, for folks that say, okay, I'm not really familiar with this besides, you know, just the good doctor or whatever. Yeah, sure. I mean, some of the giveaways are like, um, <clears throat> I, I always start with sensory processing when I talk about autism, because a lot of times, uh, you know, people will say, okay, um, we're talking about people who can't make or sustain eye contact and also have very awkward social skills and are unable to carry on a traditional conversation or engage in small talk and whatever. And that's fine. And that's part of the constellation of traits. But you know, what, what sometimes what people don't understand is that sensory processing disorder almost always accompanies autism. And it's, it's a matter of being on pins and needles. Sometimes if the temperature in the room is too warm, if uh, the lights are fluorescent and they're too bright, if there's a distant noise that most people wouldn't even hear, it might sound like nails on a chalkboard to me. And so it's very, very tricky to try to control one's environment um, in a world that's not built for us, in a world that doesn't particularly care if it's too noisy or too hot or too anything. <laughs> and so it's those sensory processing characteristics that are, that are probably they probably end up dictating pretty much everything else, you know? So I, I can't focus on, I may have a good conversation with somebody if the temperature is right and I have a glass of water and, and there's, there's no loud noises, no surprises. There's no interruptions to my routines, things like that. Uh, but otherwise I, I may not be able to focus at all. And I may go into, in fact, they call it selective mutism. When, when someone goes, an autistic person goes mute just by virtue of sensory overload. So that's probably something that um, a lot of people aren't as aware of. No, oh, that's, it's really helpful thinking about the, the role of sensory input and, and all that, that you do have to navigate in, in light of autism and just, um, and I really appreciated how you talked about that our world is not necessarily supportive or, or designed to be supportive of those who, who do have autism. Right. So gosh, it's really important for us to be mindful of. I was sorry, Holly, I know you, you're going to go next, but I had a, I had a quick thought. It's making me think, uh, like kind of this different way of looking at it, right. Is, is making me think of, um, my own experience with ADHD, right. And, uh, the, the idea. So anytime I look at like the ADHD diagnostic criteria, it like, I, my head explodes because it's it's all about the like the way they show up instead of what's actually happening, right? So it's like fails to do homework, is right. bad at this, is bad at, and I'm like, that's not. Those are just ways that these play out, not. And it sounds like you know, kind of a, a similar thing. If we say, okay, instead of the the negative impacts of these different traits, if we actually talked about the traits themselves, that's a very different way of looking at it. So yeah, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. And in fact, I, I, there's a whole, um, in the chapter early in the book where I talk about the uh, neurodiversity paradigm versus a pathology paradigm, I just quote basically from some websites uh, that are very easy to find some of the first results you get on Google um, about, you know, characteristics or they, they would use a more negative term symptoms, you know, of, of autism. And they're, they're tough to read. They're tough to read because the, the words like, yeah. and I, I mentioned this oddball and weird and things like that show up, actually show up in these texts. And you think to yourself, am yeah. I that freakish? So yeah, it's tough. I'll, I'll say, and then I'll get out of the way for Holly, your next question. But um, you quoted someone that wrote uh, like a, a definition or uh, like a way of diagnosing neurotypical syndrome. Right. And uh, it's hilarious. So <laughs> I'll just, I'll throw that out there for people to, to read the book and check out. But um, I appreciated that quite a bit. Absolutely. I got to turn the tables once in a while. <laughs> No, oh, that's good. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm internalizing or I'm um, really sitting with so much of what you're saying and, and the ways that we as a society have hurt those who are on the spectrum because of 
not fully understanding these differences for so long. But, but I, knowing folks who are autistic, I know that they see the world with such beauty and differences and, and they see with such a difference that if they, if their, if their brains weren't wired in that way, we would miss out so much in our world. And that's not to like negate the difficulties, but I, yeah. I, it just is really, I'm just really sitting with the heaviness of how much we have hurt those on the spectrum for a long time. Yeah, I really appreciate that, Holly, because there, you know, the people talk about prenatal screening, for example, and and th there's going to come a time when if you can do prenatal screening for autism, the people who have the resources and the money and the desire will be able to essentially uh, eliminate autistic babies <laughs> from the world and autistic people. And that's a very, uh, you know, I always say, be careful what you wish for, because you may think that's great. But um, in the arts and in technology and the sciences, there's so many areas where autistics have contributed mightily and you won't have that work anymore. And I think it'll be a much more homogenous world. Yeah, I, I hear you. And thank you for hearing, you know, just that um, that heaviness. And uh, yeah, it's, it's some, yeah, I, I just uh, grieve in the ways that we have so much to learn. Yeah. So I do want to note that I, I recognize that, you know, again, knowing folks who, uh, who are on the spectrum, I have heard the shift in language and I know you write about it in your book around the ways that, you know, we typically have used like first person language, like right. someone with autism, but we know from the autistic community that it is much better to say that to call someone as an autistic person instead. Is that correct? Right. Um, the, the vast majority of us prefer um, the so-called identity first language, which would be autistic rather than a person with autism. And part of that really is just the desire to um, self-identify. You know, I mean, the, the, I, I have people come to me all the time. I have students come to me who say, oh, I took the intro to exceptional learners class or something like that, you know, like special education course or something. And they and all the textbooks said we absolutely must use person first language for everyone. And so they'll and they'll do that. And then the autism community pushes back and says, well, look, we didn't have any say in that. You didn't consult us. And we prefer autistic because it's the wholeness of our identity. It's it's not it's not like there's a layer of autism over top of normal Dan. And if you can penetrate through it, then you can find neurotypical Dan underneath it. It's not the way it is. It's every part of mm -hmm. me. And it's it's all I am. It's all or nothing. I can't check it at the door. I heard a um, an autistic person of color once say, you wouldn't call me a person with pigmentation, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so I thought, well, that's really mm -hmm. interesting, right? Because you can't check that identity at the door. It is who you are and it is what it is. Um, and then the other thing being the argument for the person first language was we want to validate your personhood, you know, your identity as a full human being before we talk about disorders and syndromes and anything else. And I heard an autistic uh, woman say recently on uh, social media, if you need to remind yourself that I'm a person, <laughs> that says a lot about you, not so much about me. And uh, I really, I take that point. Yeah. And, and that's, that is something that I noticed too, right? So my, like my undergrad in education, and then obviously like my, my later training in mental health stuff, right? The, the emphasis there, I think makes sense in a lot of cases, right? And talking about, a, yep. you know, a person with depression as opposed to a depressed person or whatever, right? Like Absolutely. There's plenty of times where it does, but it, it strikes me as it's, it's interesting, right? Because you even talk in the book about how much other, other voices have spoken for the autistic autistic community, right? Like, That's okay, exactly I'm, I'm a right. clinician, I'm going to write about it, or I'm uh, someone else and I'm going to write, right? And so for me, it's what's interesting is like, I don't think it matters what I think about person first language, if you in front of me are saying, hey, I'm, I'm an autistic person, and that makes sense to me phrasing it that way, then I'll roll with that, right? Like, you know, it's just an interesting, uh, because I imagine the kind of the large share of voices that are like shouting for person first language, maybe some huge chunk of those 
are are not autistic people who are saying no no we need to do this right like it's just a weird i don't know dynamic to to kind of think through yep. given my like heavy emphasis in in the past being given to me on person first language that that's absolutely right and that, that's where it becomes problematic is is you know you always have to ask the the people themselves how they would like to be identified i mean that just seems like a common courtesy i i'm not kidding when i say i've been on facebook threads in the last couple of weeks where an autistic person was spoken over by a neurotypical person saying, um, I think you mean a person with autism. That's the respectful way to say oh it. My and, the gosh. and the autistic person chimed in and said, um, no, I think I know what I mean. <laughs> and so it, it's, it's that, it's that those moments when you just feel like, yeah, I'm tired of being spoken over. I want to be able to identify the way that I want to identify. And, and um, that makes yeah. sense. You know, it's not asking too much. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Holly referenced earlier that you were you were an adult when you started identifying with autism or, or as an autistic person, right? Yep. Can you share some about how that that shifted kind of your view of yourself, the narrative that you have, uh, how you're experiencing the world, things like that? Yeah, thanks for asking that. That's a great question. Um it, you know, it it changes everything. It's amazing the I mean, I, I, you know, I study creative writing and I teach creative writing. I'm always thinking about story and storytelling and narrative. The stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves and the stories that we tell the world about ourselves can change dramatically when we have a name for something and, and, and when we understand that it's, that it's not our fault, essentially. So if you don't feel comfortable in social gatherings and you can't make small talk very well with people and it makes you nervous and you have the tendency to freak out uh, when your senses are overloaded and and all kinds of stuff like that you know other just kind of going down the list you just feel weird and a lot of the research with autistic adults they ask them to describe how they view themselves and how they had viewed themselves throughout their lives and they almost all come back and say, I thought I was just not even human. Like I, I felt like an alien. Uh, there was a, a, a website run by an autistic person some years back called wrongplanet.com, I think. And that just kind of signifies the fact that we just felt like we were on the wrong planet, like we don't even belong. So if that's the only story you've had about yourself, you're going to think I'm weird and weird is bad. And there's no real particular reason why I'm weird. I guess I'm just failing at life. I'm just no good at life. Other people can handle changes to their schedule. I can't. Other people can handle surprises and, and interruptions. I can't. And, and right on down the line. So when someone comes along and says, Dan, none of this has been your fault for 35 years. This is the way that your brain was made. It's the way that it's wired. Uh, there's a great sigh of relief in that to say, I didn't screw anything up. I'm not a, just a, a bad person or just bad at life. I'm just autistic and it's just okay. It's just another way of being on the earth. Um, it's very affirming and empowering. And since I've been on this journey, I feel much more comfortable in my own skin. Uh, ironically, I can go out and do sort of neurotypical things nowadays socially and stuff uh, with some caveats. But you know, I feel empowered knowing who I am and that it's not my fault. I don't carry shame around and shame is very damaging. Yeah. Yeah. You, you write this line that, that I highlighted and underlined and said, it opened the gates to a world I've always lived in. Right. And mm, that just, yeah. that line like mm. struck me as so beautiful. Like I've been here the whole time, but now I, I understand what's happening and I can, I don't know, it's kind of this idea in my head of like working with yourself because you kind of know what's happening as opposed to trying to squish everything into like, if I don't fit this, then there's something wrong, you know? Yeah. And it, it's very practical. It's, you know, honestly, I, I used to go to um, conferences when I first started teaching and in inevitably I, I would get sick. Like after a couple days of all the, you know, I'd be in a, in a, uh, um, a conference room with, you know, six or 8,000 people. Sometimes these huge convention centers for writing mm -hmm. conferences and things. Mm -hmm. And I would get so sick, I'd end up with the flu and end up in bed. And I would think, why can't I just, everybody else just rolls with it and then goes to work Monday when it's all over. Why can't I do this? What is wrong with me? Well, now that I know uh, who I am, 
I can actually plan for it and I can say, okay, I can do it. I just have to do it in an autistic way. And that means I'll go to one session and see how I feel. And then I'll get some water or something to eat. And then maybe if I need to schedule in a nap for later, I will. I'll skip some of the more, you know, some of the busier things that, that don't feel right to me. And so I can just kind of manage my life so much better. I love that. I, I really appreciate how, I mean, I, I know as an academic, those conferences that yeah. you're referring to and <laughs> how overwhelming they can be for even for a neurotypical person, but I can only imagine um, for someone who is on the spectrum, what that would be like. And so that kindness that you extend to yourself, I think that's beautiful. And again, something that we can all learn from and how to, how to create those conferences in ways that are sensitive to folks on the spectrum and who, you know, so that there's not, yeah, there's just, there's, there's more sensitivity, I think, in those types of settings. Right. Absolutely. You know, it's tough to hit, to hit everyone, you know, to cover everyone and to make a conference that's sort of um, built for everybody. You're never going to be able to do it. But if you know who you are and you know your tendencies and so forth, you can, practice self-care, you know, and I I know that term kind of gets a bad rap in certain circles nowadays as being a little too sentimental (laughs) or mushy, but for me, it's life or death. (laughs) Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. No, we talk about self-care here on the show and don't have any issue with it, knowing that when we talk about self-care, it's about um, tending to our whole selves, our mind, body, spirit, social connection. It's not just about like, going and getting pampered for an afternoon. And right. That's it. Like, yeah. right. No, Sometimes we say, we say, okay, just flip. If you're tired of that, flip it around and say, how do you care for yourself there? We fixed it, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Because self-care is kind of yeah. a, you know, yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I, I do agree. It's sometimes been hijacked to, uh, for capitalism in ways right. <laughs> that that's not, yeah, what, what we're referring to. That's, that's good. Well, I appreciate the ways that you model that and talk about it there. So I do know in the later part of your book, you talk about how autism interacts with your faith life. And um, one chapter in particular opens with these couple of sentences where you write, what does it mean for a person to be a, quote, faithful steward of God's grace? How does it look specifically from the autism spectrum? Can you talk some about what, uh, what that does look like for you? Yeah, um, in in many ways, it's it's the same as we as we were just talking about um, in terms of mm-hmm. like going to a conference. But let's just replace that with going to church <laughs> um, or or yeah. uh, working in Christian higher ed, like I do. My role just simply will not look like other people's roles will look, and <laughs> that's tough to accept and that's tough to live with sometimes because you feel a lot of guilt for that and maybe even shame, and then that's become self defeating, you know. Um, so I write about, for example, that at my church in um, the small Rust Belt city of Marion, Indiana, there's a lot of poverty. Uh, there are people who are experiencing homelessness and addiction and, and uh, need mental health care and all, all kinds of stuff. And our church is right in the middle of that city. And we have a, a dinner uh, that we offer free for the homeless. And one of the roles that is really valued at our church is serving at that dinner. And that's not something that I do because the the levels of anxiety that that causes me to talk to strangers and to um, learn how they do that and learn the whole system and the routine, what to do, what not to do, um, all that kind of stuff just seems very stressful to me. I may be somebody who takes a different approach. Um, For example, years ago when our kids were little, I'd go in the nursery from time to time with them, you know, not every single week, but, but once in a while. And I, I love being in the nursery. It's just my personality. I love babies and I love, I love holding them. I love calming down the one who's crying that nobody else can get to calm down. Uh, and just being in a rocking chair with a baby or something. So my, in terms of like Christian service, serving the community um, and having roles within the body of Christ, uh, that's, it just looks different for me, and it, it it's 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 tough to um, come around and accept those things after a while, especially in places like the rural Midwest, where perhaps uh, stereotypical gender expectations are in place, you know, for many generations and things like that. 
you got to work through those things and know who you are and what's going to work best and, and trust God that, uh, that that's the plan for you and it's okay. Oh, that's yeah. good. I think that's, I think that's really helpful. I was just um, thinking too, this is probably really helpful in thinking about the number of faith leaders who listen to our podcast to be thinking about, you know, just the variety of ways in which those who are serving, who are autistic, the ways in which they serve can be really unique based on, you know, their own needs and their preferences. And so for you to talk about like, you know, this type of setting, it's not, I can't do that setting, but this one, I am happy to serve in and like help in. And I, I just really appreciate that. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I, many communities for years I've heard in churches, you know, about the uh, one body, many parts metaphor in the Bible. And and yet mm-hmm. it always seemed somewhat limited. You know, they would say one body, many parts, and we all need each other and we do many, di- we have many different roles. But generally speaking, they wanted the men of the church to do one thing and the women to do something else and the kids mm-hmm. to do another thing. And they were pretty standard expectations. <laughs> I mean, up to and including years ago when I was a young teenager, my parents attended a, a pretty fundamentalist uh, Baptist church. And pretty much the only area of expectation for young men was to go knocking on doors and handing out tracts to people and asking them, do you know where you're going to go if you died today? You know, And I'm like, that was uh, the Man. most horrifying, terrifying thing I could ever, ever think to do. And so I just made myself scarce during those moments when they wanted us to try to do that stuff. But I felt guilty about it because I was convinced that those were our leaders. They were men of God and that that, they, that was God's will for us is that we would hand out those tracks and I was shrinking away from it. So I must be a bad Christian. Yeah. Yeah. So on the, on the kind of maybe flip side, right. Thinking about, okay, there are some things where like, okay, this doesn't quite fit with what I can do or what I'm comfortable with, things like that. Right. The kind of part of the, part of the, um, the subtitle, right. Is the gifts of neurodiversity. So yep. can you talk some about what you would say? Like, Hey, the gifts are like, we're not just talking about limitations or, or challenges. Those are there, but that means that, that there's also gifts kind of on the, on the other side. Right. Can you talk some about that? Yeah, um, I, I see I see them manifest in different individuals in a lot of different ways. <laughs> I'm convinced, as many uh, writers are who've studied autism and, and many autistic people themselves, you know, we know, for example, that um, a, a disproportionate number of autistics work in Silicon Valley. You know, <laughs> they're making contributions because they're good problem solvers and. Um, very frequently where other people will give up and reach the end of their rope on a certain problem, the autistic will take it personally and have an, be, uh, have an obsession with, with a certain problem or a puzzle until it's fixed, until it's done. And so, you know, what we were talking about earlier with people looking at it only from a deficit side and only as a pathology to the point of even wanting to eliminate autism from the planet I, th- I think, again, be careful what you wish for, because that new iPhone that you're so happy playing around on, I bet you anything there were some problems putting that into production and some autistic person sat there all night and figured it out where <laughs> no one else could. Mm-hmm. I, I guarantee it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd be willing to bet money. Now, for me, I, I know nothing of engineering or code or <laughs> any of that sort of thing because I'm, I'm a writer. I'm a creative writer and I'm into the arts. You know, when I look at unique contributions, I'm thinking of stuff like I can write a certain kind of poem that might be appealing to a certain reader because I'm so immersed in this vivid and specific sensory details of our world, you know, um, and that's a function of my autistic brain. I I don't necessarily always see the big picture. In fact, I, I often don't. I can't see the forest for the trees. But I can really describe those trees in a way that might bring them to life uh, in a in a novel or in a poem or something like that. And that that's a small contribution, perhaps, but um, it's one of I consider it one of the gifts maybe of neurodiversity. Yeah. Yeah. No, I absolutely agree. I think you're right. You know about the piece of um, you know those who are in Silicon Valley and. I know right now as we're recording this, like Facebook and Instagram and Gmail have all shut down. <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> sure, there are some folks figuring that out. Um, right. But, 
But no, I love what you mentioned about, you know, poetry, because you're right. I mean, a lot of, a lot of poets and painters and authors, you know, that intense focus yes. is such a gift. Yeah. And so many of us don't, you know, we just don't have that attention and focus and, you know, and, and we learn so much from those who, who do have that intense focus and those gifts that you're elevating. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, it's, it's interesting because we often, uh, we autistics will often take some heat for our obsessions. They call them special interests. And some people just say SI, they, they do become obsessions often. <laughs> and, and so people, you know, will look at maybe a little kid on the spectrum who's obsessed with dinosaurs or trains or something like that. And they, they're, they're kind of in awe and kind of a little scared. And they'll say, all right, I realize, you know, all of the names of all the dinosaurs, you know, like a paleontologist with a PhD, but would you just go outside and play football with the neighborhood kids? Uh, so, you know, they often want to drag us away from those things, but it, it is that focus that allows us to persist in a lot of areas in our lives. And, and I find that useful. Yeah, no, I, I mean, we, it certainly supports, you know, society and so many of us in general. And it is, it is a gift. You were just talking about the dinosaurs made me think of the son in Mitchell's versus machines. I don't know if you've seen that movie. No, I haven't. Oh, I, I know that there's some write up about the, the son and the daughter and the dad each being autistic. And um, it's just interesting. It's a good oh, movie, that's, I have to check that out for sure. Yeah, it's good. There's really good representation in it. So, nice. Um, well, I am curious for our listeners who might identify as uh, being neurotypical, what are some important things? And, and not just, I mean, I just for any of our listeners, I should say, um, forgive me. Um, I would just say for any of our listeners, what are some things that we can be doing to be creating communities that want um, to be safe and accessible for neurodiverse people. And I think about this broadly, but I'm also very intentionally thinking about like, are there examples that, you know, families can be thinking about if, you know, someone within their family um, is autistic or things that schools can be doing or teachers or those in children's ministries or, or adult ministries, or just, I mean, just general just, just, are there some things that you can think of? I know that's a really yeah. broad, broad question. So forgive more that, but. Um... No, no, it's a, I mean, it's really a wonderful and important question. I don't have deeply specific answers that I would like to have. I mean, I wish I had kind of a bullet list of things for each of those categories. Cause you know, like you're saying in, in, in education and schools and things like that, that was, it's so critical and so important. Mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> the first thing I would say is, um, not to be self-serving about it, but li listening to seeking out and listening to um, own voices, narratives. So the own voices, mm. um, meaning that the author of that content <laughs> is someone who is in that marginalized group, you know, that they're talking about in the, in the book uh, or article or, or blog post or whatever it is. I, I just think there's a, a, a kind of quality of humility in seeking out own voices. So, for example, if I wanted to learn more about the um, Afghan refugee experience, you know, in, a, in an American city that is taking in uh, a good number of refugees, I, I wouldn't just read newspaper reports from, you know, the New York Times or, or some other thing. I, I would look to that community and say, who is in that community who's sharing from their lived experience and what are they saying? And to me, that's the, the probably mm -hmm. the critical first step. And so it could be just reading a book like mine. And, and, and I'm really honored that anybody would read it. And by the same token, I would say it's just one, it's just one book and I'm a white heterosexual male uh, and you know, there are other people with intersecting identities who are writing, uh, books and articles about being on the spectrum and being a person of color or, um, or, you know, any number of other things. And so seeking out those voices from within the marginalized communities and really listening is the most amazing thing. I don't expect it. 
Um, I lived most of my life without it happening, and I didn't know uh, one way or the other myself either. But nowadays, I'll tell you what, the, the greatest thing that can ever happen to me is just when someone recognizes that they, that they have something to learn and they ask me for my preferences, you know, it's just, it's just a, an amazingly mm-hmm. powerful and freeing experience. If I go to coffee with somebody and they're like, Dan, I know um, sometimes, you know, the, if there's too much sunshine or uh, if it's too warm in a certain spot or something, you might be uncomfortable. So if you want to move, just pick where you want to sit. Okay. Let me know. It's no big deal. It sounds like nothing, but it's the most humble and and, and uh, empowering kind of thing anybody could do. I just think it's it's wonderful. So seeking out those voices, whether you're a teacher, a pastor, um, whatever your role is. Oh, I love yeah. that so much. I love that, you know, like listening to the voices and then meeting those individuals with a sincere, wholehearted, I see you. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, if if we're going to, um, as Christians, you know, um, if, if we're going to follow the commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves, we should be doing that with everybody, (laughs) you know, whether just finding Mm -hmm. out who everybody is and saying, what is it that makes you tick? What's tough for you? What's good for you? And I want to serve you. I want, I want, you know, I want to do this. And, um, that we should help each other like that. Oh my gosh. Wholehearted. Mm. Yes. Amen. <laughs> That's so good. I had a, um, I, I knew a wise older woman one time who uh, told me the first duty of love is to listen. And yeah. That's like for sure what we're talking about here. Well, um, Daniel, one thing that we love to do too is, um, especially when we have authors or researchers come on who really poured their hearts into the work that they're doing, whether it's a book or research study or, or, or advocacy effort, whatever it is that they're doing. We love to really get a sense of what their hope is for the work that they do. Um, so I would love to hear, you know, you've launched this book. It's been out now for just a couple of months, I think. Yep. And so I'd love to hear, you know, what is your hope for, this book and and the work that you do? Yeah, somewhat of a tough question. I mean, you know, some part of me would like to have success as a writer, however that's defined, right? I don't know if that means like <laughs> becoming a bestseller or something yeah. like that. Some some selfish part. And so I want to be honest about adaptation. that. adaptation. I would love it. Yeah. <laughs> I would love it if, the, you know, if this thing took off. But here's the, here's the deal in, uh, for me. In the first couple of weeks, uh, this came out on, on August 10th, by, by the beginning of September, I couldn't keep up re- responding to the number of emails that came in through, my, through the contact form on my website mm. from people around the world. And this continues on till now. Uh, people around the world and around the, the U.S., uh, from the U.K. and Australia and, and par- parts of Europe and other places who, who said um, this, reading this book just changed my entire perspective. Now I understand my son better or I understand my daughter better or I understand yeah. myself better. <laughs> um, I got I got a, a three page handwritten letter from a woman in Philadelphia um, telling me about this longtime strained relationship between her and her mother and how she's able to extend grace to her mother now because she understands that she was simply autistic and her brain functioned differently. (laughs) You hold that letter in your hand and you understand I'll probably never become a New York Times bestseller. That's, That's against the odds, right? But uh, the real stuff is out there happening one person at a time. And as, as cliche as that might sound, it's really beautiful to behold. It's really special. Yeah. Oh, that's so beautiful. Daniel, yeah. I, I, Daniel, I really appreciate you saying that. And I, I'm really grateful that you're able to receive those letters and those messages um, and the impact that you're having on our world because that matters. I, yeah, I, I hope so. And, you know, the other thing I might mention, too, is for the younger people. So at the end of the book, there's a chapter where I interview. Um, I thought a good way to end it might be, OK, I told my story a ton and I, you know, uh, dove into and examined my childhood and lots of parts of my life. But I am a faculty advisor to a group of autistic students on my campus. 
And so I actually, you know, asked them if anyone would be willing to be interviewed for the book. And some of them said yes. And uh, the interviews are my favorite part of the book, actually, uh, with these students, because they're so articulate and so smart and so great. And these kids tell me, and they're only 20 years old or something, and they tell me what they went through in their childhood. And and through a book like this and through the process of seeing someone in a position of power um, who is openly autistic and telling the stories of those struggles, they are empowered uh, to, to, to live their lives. And... And that's just thrilling to me. Uh, that's a that's a really exciting thing too. So I hope the next generation maybe has a little bit better, has an easier time. Yeah, I love that. And I, just in case it cut out there, I'm not sure how much uh, we had a, a little hiccup in recording. So if you if all of what you said got in there, but I do want to highlight that you uh, interviewed some some students for the back of the book, which I thought was awesome. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's one um, the other day when I did my uh, on campus book launch, which went really well uh, on my campus here in Indiana. <laughs> some of those students were there, and and one of the questions in the Q and A was, "Do you have a favorite essay?" You know, because these are this is a memoir in essays, and it's got all these different little bits and pieces. And I said, "Yeah, my favorite part is the part where I'm not talking, <laughs> but four young people mm. on the spectrum are talking, <laughs> and they're profoundly articulate and smart and funny." And these are kids who went through their childhood thinking that they're weird and being called lots of names and being bullied. And, and they are reclaiming and redeeming their own past um, by looking to books like this and kind of taking back their dignity in, in certain ways. And it's really amazing to be part of that. Yeah. Hey, listener, if you want to connect with Daniel, you can do that at com facebook.com slash creative autistic or on Twitter or Instagram at at Daniel Bowman Jr. You can order this book on the spectrum, Autism, Faith, and the Gifts of Neurodiversity, wherever you get your books. If you want to connect with Holly, you can find her at hollyoxhandler.com or on any social media at hollyoxhandler. You can connect with me at robert-vore.com or on any social media at Robert Vore. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today and, and uh, letting us hear from you and learn from you. Do you have any uh, closing thoughts for our listeners? Um, I just want to say how much I appreciate the opportunity to do things like this because you just never know who's out there hearing this. And it could be someone with um, an autistic uh, child or an autistic parent or uh, someone autistic in their congregation. And um, it's a real honor to just be able to speak into their lives. So thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMH Podcast at gmail.com.